Thanks, Ben. Um, before I get started, I want to make one quick announcement. So we have had uh, some more volunteers for nursery, which KTC, which is a huge blessing. We still could use one or two more. So if uh, the Lord's moving your heart, um, that would be a blessing. You can just let um, Julie know. So um, I'm going to read the text, and then we will uh, pray, and then um, get started. So, um, but uh, all right, so Daniel 5, I'm going to read verses. Ben, will you hit the lights real quick? I'm going to hit, uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 in Daniel 5. So this is what it says. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of them, of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. The king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, signifying royalty, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be, a, shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and the lords and his lords were perplexed. Jesus, I come to you right now. I thank you for your word. Thank you for this morning that we can gather together around your word. Thank you for being sovereign. Thank you, Lord, that things working in the world are not up to us. Thank you for being willing to serve and to offer yourself for us, so, Lord, that we can have eternity with you. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak through me, through my weakness, through my finite abilities. I pray, Father, that you would just help us to be free of distraction. And help us to leave here, Lord, warned and admonished, but also encouraged in loving you all the more. In your name, amen. So this passage, Daniel 5, we are introduced to this guy, Belshazzar. And we don't, we're, we don't see one of the finer moments in his life. And if you think about your life and all the things that you've done, there are probably some moments that are not your finer moments that you may do over again if you had a chance. So as I was thinking about that, th thinking about that this week, there was one particular point in time that came to my mind. I was probably nine or ten, and my best friend Jeremy, uh, we our moms were best friends uh, before we were born. So we basically were together from the time we were born. We were four months apart. And uh, we, we spent a lot of time together, and in the summer, we had a lot of free time. I grew up in a small town, um, kind of centered around the lake, where a lot of people knew each other. 
And um, one day during the summer, I was hanging out at his house, and we had too much free time on our hands, which sometimes <laughs> led to not good things as it did on this day. So we decided to go for a walk. So we go for a walk, and not long into the walk, we decide that every glass bottle we find on the side of the road, we're going to pick up and smash in the middle of the road. And, um, right? So you're seeing why this is a good idea. And so, so we go on like this 30-minute or hour walk. Not only do we break them, we walk down one side, then we come back down the other side and find all those glass bottles and smash them in the middle of the road. So this was, you know, kind of uh, early to mid-80s before, you know, littering was really frowned upon, I think. So there, was, there were plenty of bottles to choose from. And uh, so we go back to his house, and we're hanging out. And later that afternoon, his mom and dad and my mom, my, my parents are divorced, my mom come and they ask us if we know anything about these broken bottles on the road. And so, of course, we say, no, but we didn't do it, but we saw the kids who did it, and they look like trouble. And uh, so we think, we're geniuses. We're off the hook here. And so that night, it's dark, and we're laying on Jeremy's trampoline, and uh, I think he looks over at me and says, hey, do you think they have any idea? And I go, no, we're fine. We're clear. And within minutes of me saying that, my mom comes out and she says, Hunter, get in the car. And not in a very loving, motherly tone. So um, I look at Jeremy. He looks at me. We both get this kind of sinking feeling. The ride's pretty silent home. It's a short ride, thankfully. We go inside, and my mom grabs a wire coat hanger, and the old school wire coat hangers. And um, the back of my legs in this coat, she go, it's like a Gatlin gun. She is just hammering away on my legs. It was the worst spanking I ever <laughs> remember getting. And so I was thinking about that, and I thought, what an idiot. That was not one of my finer moments. I don't know what we were thinking that, you know, we we're geniuses. And somehow his dad made him go back and sweep everything up, and I, I didn't get, I, I got out of that. I don't know how, um, if he didn't tell my mom or what happened. But uh, we were comparing battle wounds the next day on who kind of had the most bruises. Um, so we pick up kind of in a similar situation here with Belshazzar, where he kind of puts himself on display and, and just kind of throws out all of his foolishness, and God is going to come in and, and bring judgment. Um, and I can honestly say that I never broke another bottle of my knowledge in the road after that whooping. And so the judgment that God comes in here is meant to lead to correction and salvation. But unfortunately, we don't see that happen to Belshazzar. So I want to just set, give you the setting of what hap what's happening in Babylon at the time that, that Belshazzar is in control. So the end of chapter 4 ends with Nebuchadnezzar's in charge. He's ruling, and he's just been rebuked by God for the third time, and he appears now to be making a genuine repentance and kind of setting the whole, the whole kingdom of Babylon on a different trajectory. And so Belshazzar comes in and, and appears to just be wrecking things and taking it the other direction. Now, Belshazzar was most likely not the direct son of Nebuchadnezzar, even though it says, we'll see in the text, it calls Nebuchadnezzar his father. In the ancient writing, they didn't use the term grandfather or great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather. Father was meant more just to denote ancestry. So similar to how... Um, Abraham is called the father of the Jewish people. It did not mean he's literally the father of every Jewish people, but he was the original seed that God chose to 
create the Jewish people. So it's that kind of relationship here where Nebuchadnezzar is, is um, the ancestral father of Belshazzar, but unlikely his actual biological father. So Belshazzar was the um, grand, he was the son of Nabonidus. Now Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. So the, the Medes come in and they conquer Babylon. And um, so Belshazzar is most likely in charge of the city of Babylon because Nabonidus spent 10 years of his life. He didn't like Babylon, so he spent 10 years setting up a royal residence for himself in a place called Timon. So Belshazzar is most likely the one who's left in charge, which would make sense because he says, um, I'll make you third, the third ruler. In verse 7, he said, I'll make you the third ruler in the kingdom. Well, he's probably the second ruler, and third is as high as he can offer because Nabonidus is, is number one. He's in charge of Babylon at the time, and so he's kind of given out, you know, the best position that he's allowed to give out. So that's, that's kind of who's ruling, who's in charge of Babylon, is you have kind of a king who's absent, and then you have a ruler, his son, who is kind of, you know, messing things up. And, and what's happening at the time of Babylon is we'll see at the end of the chapter, it says in verse uh, 30, that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. So Babylon was a big city. It was very well insulated. It had a big wall that went around it. The wall was so wide that chariots could even pass on top of it. Um, and it was known for having a huge storehouse of food. So the fact that this night that Belshazzar is throwing this big party and it's going to end in his destruction, there was no surprise sneak attack. Darius didn't show up in the middle of the night, surprise Babylon. It would have taken weeks, if not months, to put Babylon under siege before they would have been able to penetrate and come in. So it just kind of adds, understanding the, the historical context adds to the foolishness of what Belshazzar is doing here. Because in the middle of his city being under attack, in the middle of a war, right literally at his front door, he decides to throw this big raging party. And so we're going to see as we look at his character, there are a lot of things that are lacking. Um, and actually... This fulfills the prophecy that, that God talked about. In Isaiah 47, Isaiah prophesies about the destruction of Babylon. And specifically in verses 10 and 11, this is what he says. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. That I am language is reserved for God referring to himself. Um, so this highlights some of the blasphemy. You said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. So we know Babylon, Belshazzar is throwing this party. His city is under siege. So either he's so disconnected from reality that he doesn't care that they're in the middle of war and he just wants to have fun and party it up. Or his thinking is so warped and, and so contorted that he doesn't think there's actually any way that they'll be defeated. I mean, he thinks their city is impenetrable and that he doesn't have anything to worry about. So let's look at Bel Belshazzar's character. Um, and we'll see four things uh, in his character that all highlight um, his need for God and what's lacking in his character. 
So the first thing is we see he's lacking in virtue. So he likes to party, and he likes to have not just, you know, family get-togethers and, and grill some burgers. He likes to have big parties. So it says he invited a 1,000 of his lords and his wives and his concubines were there. There would have been servants there to serve the food. So this is, this is a big ordeal. We're talking multiple thousands of people. And he puts himself on display in front of everybody. So when it says he drank wine in front of the thousand, it's not meaning that he was just necessarily at the head table. It means he was making some kind of spectacle, some kind of show where he wanted everybody watching him. He wanted everybody's praise and attention on him. Um, he wanted to be the center of the center of the show. He basically wanted everybody to to stroke his ego for him. So um, now Nebuchadnezzar, his you know most likely grandfather, was not a virtuous person either. And God shows up and rebukes Nebuchadnezzar three different times. Um, so this highlights some of Belshazzar's foolishness because he would have no doubt have been familiar with the stories of Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king, essentially, in the history of Babylon, and he went through these, you know, terribly humbling circumstances. And so um, God is going to deal with Belshazzar different than he deals with Nebuchadnezzar, and, Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar is not going to turn and repent like Nebuchadnezzar does. Um, so, again, he throws this big party, and then not only is he kind of this, um, you know, guy who wants to take place in drunken debauchery, he takes it up a notch and he says, let's go ahead and blaspheme. Let's make an even bigger show of who I am and kind of what Babylon is. So he says, let's bring in the gold and silver and bronze. And he doesn't call for any random gold, silver, or bronze. He calls specifically for the relics that came from Jerusalem. These relics, which God earlier in the Bible spends a lot of time and energy telling exactly how to make, exactly how to craft, and how they're to be used in worship of him. He wants to bring these things in and just let the wine flow, um, showing that he doesn't have any respect for the one true God, that he just wants to mock God and mock the things of God. And so um, we see his blasphemy, and this is a dangerous place to be. There are a couple verses that I want to reference, Galatians and Isaiah. In Galatians 6, verses 7 through 8, this is what Paul tells us. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, from the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then to highlight further the blasphemy, Isaiah says in, in 2.8, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So God is basically trying to highlight the absurdity, the absolute um, just ridiculousness of serving idols that are made with your own hands. These, these are essentially, you know, dumb metals who don't have the ability to talk or speak. And anything that they're worshiping, they've created themselves. And it's impossible for the created vessel to be greater than the creator. So God is basically highlighting, look, blasphemy is serious, and look at how ridiculous you're being. Now, in, in, in parts of the world today, people still bow down to um, physical idols, um, and it was prevalent a lot in the ancient world. The Romans uh, were well known for having idols in their house. Um, 
the, you know, the Ephesians, the Greeks were well known for having these temples with these false idols where they would go worship. Today, it's a little more subtle. Um, you know, we may worship and, and pursue idolatry through um, trying to pursue positions or, or money or possessions or, or um, fame or just having people like us. So it's not always clear where if I go to your house, you would say, hey, this is where I do my idol worship. But we, it would be evident in your life, um, just like it was here in Belshazzar's life. So um, he's blaspheming. He's blaspheming the God of heaven. And another point that I just want to make a reminder is we're all, we will worship something. So we either worship God or we will worship idols. And we love sin. We love to not worship God. We love to pursue correction. And so we need God to break in and to change us. Romans tells us that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there, there are none of us that are capable of keeping God's law or choosing God, but he is rich in mercy and offers us salvation. Um, the third thing we see about Belshazzar is that he's very proud. And so he, again, he was making kind of a, a display of himself, a show of himself by drinking this wine in front of everybody and saying, hey, look at me. We don't know if he's trying to show everybody that he can handle a lot of alcohol or if he's just kind of making a big show while he's doing it, but he wants everybody watching and praising him. And then he decides to do that with the vessels which shows not only blasphemy, but another layer of pride that he is not worried about the one true God. He's willing to take his vessels and use those in his kind of prideful mocking moment. So it's a whole nother level of pride. But God is sovereign and he does intervene in the affairs of men. And we're going to see that. The last thing about Belshazzar is he's foolish. He's not one who makes wise decisions. And um, it, th there's a connection here, I think, between what he's doing and kind of his, his lineage and what happened in 1 Kings 12. So in 1 Kings 12, Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam becomes king. And when Rehoboam becomes king, he makes a really, really poor decision early in his, early in his reign, and it costs him a lot. So remember, Solomon was, was the most prosperous king in all of, of Jewish history. He experienced unprecedented peace. He had, you know, riches that they said the half had not even been told. His wisdom was astounding. So he puts together this cabinet of people, of advisors, to give him advice. And so things are going well in the kingdom when Rehoboam takes over. And so you would think that he would not come in and just gut everything that was working and start over, but that's essentially what he does. So he comes in, he has this really tough decision to make, and he goes to Solomon's council, the wise men of, of, of his time, and he says, tell me what to do here. They give him wise, sound advice. Well, then he goes to his peers, essentially the people he wants to put in to be his wise counselors, these other young bucks like himself. And he says, hey, what do you think I should do? This is what the, the, the old washed-up wise guy said. And they said, um, no, and they tell him to do the opposite. And so he comes back and he basically says, you guys, your time has passed. Um, get ready. We're about, to, we're about to show people what it really means to be king. So he comes and he tells his decision. He makes his decision. And then almost immediately, his kingdom is torn apart. And he only ends up with it being king over a fraction of the, of the original kingdom he inherited. And the rest of it's given to Jeroboam. And so Rehoboam's foolishness is kind of on display for everybody to see. And it results in immediate kind of judgment and God stripping away his kingdom. 
Belshazzar's in a similar situation. He is going to be basically, we don't know that he did the same thing Rehoboam did if he came in and just kind of gutted all the wise men that were there and put in the new people. But we do know Daniel is not there. Not only is Daniel not there, Belshazzar doesn't even know who Daniel is. So again, similar to Solomon, Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king in Babylon. He had this kind of unprecedented wealth and essentially the whole, you know, he, he was kind of ruler over the ancient world. And so things are going pretty good in his kingdom. He's, he's worked hard to build, you know, this rich, prosperous kingdom. And then now we have Belshazzar who's come in and at least Nebuchadnezzar's most trusted wise advisor is nowhere to be found. And at the time that Daniel gets called in here, he's old. He's probably even in his 80s. So he's seen a lot happen in Babylon. He has a lot of wisdom. And um, for whatever reason, again, we don't know if Belshazzar demoted him. But Belshazzar has, has, does not have Daniel in his life. He does not have his sound wisdom and advice. And God's judgment is going to come in and take away his whole kingdom and his life. And so um, Belshazzar is, is one who acts foolishly and rejects wise counsel. All right, so that's a little bit about what Babylon, who was ruling Babylon, kind of what was happening then, and then Belshazzar, kind of what who he is. Um, and so let's talk about how God deals with um, those in authority because God is going to break in and he's going to directly intervene in this situation. And this is the fourth time in the book of Daniel where we're going to see God come in and deal with the pagan king. Um, the first three times were all with Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel, God uses Daniel twice to rebuke Nebuchadnezzar and show off that he's really God. He uses Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego once. So this fourth time, Belshazzar comes in and, and you know, starts pursuing his foolishness and his pride, and God is going to show up. And Belshazzar enters kind of abruptly in chapter 5, and he's gone by the end of chapter 5. And this is meant to help us understand that God is in control, that there is, until we are in eternity with him, there will be political tension, there will be corruption, there will be problems in this world, but God is sovereign over those things, and he has the ability to set up leaders, to tear them down without any resistance or any ability to have his plan foiled. And, and that's what this chapter is meant to show us. Belshazzar kind of shows up, and then God takes him out. And so uh, we don't have to worry or fret whether you, you feel like your family or your life or the country or the world is out of control. God is able to break in and deal with people as he sees fit. And it's important to remember that he's, he's not capable of dealing with us imperfectly. He will deal with us perfectly uh, because his, his character is perfect. So as, as Kent reminded us, I um, thought he did a really good job a couple weeks ago, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And God is getting ready to break in and, and show how he opposes the proud. So I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. Um, this is part of Daniel's answer. When Belshazzar says, um, hey, come in, and I need some answers. You know, I'll give you a royal robe. I'll give you a chain around your neck, um, a gold chain around your neck. So... Um, this is what he, this, and then Daniel starts to, to kind of re, to, to answer him and rebuke him and explain God's judgment. And this is what he says in verses 19 and 20. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar to hear. So, and because of the greatness that he, meaning God, gave him, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, 
So, and because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, all nations, all languages trembled and feared before him, meaning Nebuchadnezzar. Um, whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But in his heart, uh, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. So God is trying to remind us that, you know, these, these men of, of Babylon were hard men. They were not men who cared about their people. They saw their people as a means to an end. They were not men who were trying to love and protect and care for their people. We get this picture of Nebuchadnezzar where he basically did whatever he wanted to whomever he wanted, whenever he wanted, however he wanted. And, and he was concerned about his own narcissistic urges. And Belshazzar appears to be following in the same, um, the same line of destruction. And so these verses don't tell us anything when they're describing Nebuchadnezzar about a pursuit of love or justice or righteousness or truth. It was all about him and what he wanted. And, and, and these kings have become so oppressive. Um, Nabonidus, when, he, when the city of Babylon and the, and the, the um, kingdom were captured and they were turned over, the people, Nabonidus was so unpopular among the people of Babylon that when the invaders came in, the people actually welcomed them. Um, they were tired of this kind of oppressive you know, rule where people were not treated um, as people, but they were dehumanized and treated as objects. And so they welcomed these invaders. And this doesn't leave us with a great picture of men who really loved and cared for their people. It leaves us with a picture of men who were sinful and, and only cared about their own needs um, and pursued destruction. And God wants us to know that he's different than those in authority. He does bring judgment, but he brings judgment to offer salvation. God is holy. He is pure. He is just. He cannot ignore our sin, so his wrath is very real, and it, his wrath is to be feared. But he's also a servant, unlike these men. He serves, and he offers his own son in our place. The wrath that would have crushed us fell upon Jesus so that we can, have, that we can be with the Lord and that we can experience joy unspeakable. So when God's presence shows up, two things happen. Sin is exposed and truth is declared. And we're going to see that here. We're going to see his pride exposed, Belshazzar's pride exposed. We're going to see the queen come in and speak truth. And then we're going to see divine truth spoken through Daniel. So when this finger appears, this hand appears, and this finger writes on the wall, Belshazzar is immediately terrified. I mean, this is real fear. It says his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. I mean, he probably fainted if his limbs gave way. So he was just making a spectacle of himself, seeking the praise of everybody in front of, in front of him. Now he's crumbling. He's literally collapsing in front of everybody, also making a spectacle of himself, but this time being humbled by God. So he was, he was just up there kind of saying he was the man of the hour, puffing out his chest. And now he, he's just totally helpless before the Lord. And it's important to remember that pride always has at its root insecurity. So whenever we are being prideful about something, we are trying to cover up something that either some sin or something that we're insecure about to try to glaze over so that hopefully nobody notices. And so God puts, puts the light here on Belshazzar and exposes his, his insecurity. And so how does Belshazzar respond? 
he calls for the wisdom of the world. And it says, the king called loudly. Now, I don't know there if loudly means he's like screaming like a little child, you know, just get me something, I need some relief. Or if he's kind of taken time, gotten himself together, and is now kind of puffing out his chest of, I'm the king, Babylon is mighty, we'll bring in these, we'll bring in these brilliant men and we'll figure this out. But it says he called loudly. And so he immediately turns to the wisdom and the resources of the world. And he's hoping that these things can bail him out, that they can help him. Um, and this is often what we do a lot of times as believers. When something happens in our life that's hard, that's frustrating, a lot of times we turn to ourselves, our abilities, or we turn to those in the world to help us out. And that will leave us, when we have a problem, that will leave us empty because God is the only one with any real power or any real authority to change hearts. Um, I recently just finished reading the book A Praying Life, and in there Paul Miller does a great job of kind of highlighting um, how to, to, to kind of constantly lay your needs and your helplessness before God. Um, and he, he shares a lot of powerful stories from his own life of when he tried to fix, thing, fix things on his own and it often got worse and worse, and then how God would come in when he kind of helplessly turned to him. And he, and he also shares a lot of encouraging stories about kind of turning to God right away and how God would break in and help. And so um, Belshazzar is not, is not turning to God. He's turning kind of to the wisdom of the world, hoping that this will bail him out. Um, but the wisdom of the world will always leave us empty, and, and the resources of the world will always leave us empty because God is divine. And so when he's trying to do something, his wisdom is divine, and it's not able to be understood. Um, by, by us apart from his intervention. And Martin Luther was dealing with this a lot in his day. A lot of people kind of in, in his time, you know, 500 or so years ago, um, there was the rise of atheism and humanism was happening. And a lot of people were starting to really call into question God and how can there be suffering in the world and how can God be good and how can he be in control? And so Martin Luther felt compelled to respond to these questions that were being asked and he, he responded with some direct truth, um, but one of the things he included in his response was, um, we are humans, and so we have a certain level of finite abilities, we have a certain level of, of flawed, um, uh, flawed capabilities as humans, and God is divine. He's different than us. His wisdom is different, and so it should make sense to us that there are things in life that we can't understand, that, that people who aren't believers can't understand, apart from the direct revelation of God, because we do not possess divine wisdom apart from the Holy Spirit coming and, and taking residence in us. And so um, what Belshazzar needs here is he needs some divine wisdom and some divine revelation, and he's turning to the wrong place to try to get it. Um, so we see again his countenance, his whole countenance changes, and he kind of he kind of becomes one that's weak again, and he crumbles. Um, it says, again, his color changed. He was greatly alarmed. And now it also says, and his lords were perplexed. So you can imagine it's probably really silent. Nobody's saying anything because they just brought in, you know, the best people to fix it, and nobody has anything to offer at all. And so then we have the queen come in, and she's going to declare some truth. Um, as We don't know what her beliefs about God are, but God's going to use her to declare some truth to um, Belshazzar. Now, the queen wasn't at the party. We don't know why. Maybe she was just old and crotchety and didn't want to stay up late. Or maybe she knew it was going to be a big 
debauchery fest, and she didn't want any part of it. But she comes in and listen to the rebuke that she gives Daniel. And you get the sense that this woman has a lot of experience. So we don't know if she was um, Nabonidus' wife or if she was Nebuchadnezzar's wife. We don't know exactly his relationship to the queen, um, other than it, it, it's not, you know, one of, um, because of his position, and one of them being married. But she comes in as one who has a lot of experience and as sometimes only an old grandma or mom can do she issues this like public scolding with no regard for what kind of reputation you know what kind of hit he's going to take on his reputation so she comes in in verse 11 and she's going to tell him to um, call for Daniel so this is what she says there's a man in your kingdom and whom is the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father pointing to Nebuchadnezzar, so again, not necessarily his direct father, but his ancestor, light and, wis- light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. So she knows a lot about Daniel's character. If she was Nebuchadnezzar's wife, she would have had a front row seat to see a lot of the things that God did to humble him and change him, and she would have seen how he was different. Um, so in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was were found in him and the king Nebuchadnezzar your father your father the king she says like the same thing four times the king your father your father the king she's basically saying you are an idiot this is the man you need to talk to and so again this is in front of everybody made him the chief of the magicians and the enchanters the Chaldeans and the astrologers so she's saying all of these men you just talked to he was in charge of all of them, and now you don't even know who he is, you idiot. And so she's giving him the answer. And so Belshazzar takes the queen's advice, but he doesn't appear to be very happy about it. So he calls Daniel, um, and he brings Daniel in. But listen to what he says to Daniel. He says, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. Now, he's basically giving Daniel three cutdowns there. He's, he doesn't call him by his normal name. Oh, you're Daniel. He says, you are that Daniel. So he, he's, you know, almost kind of dehumanizing him here. Then he says, you're one of the exiles. Basically, you're an alien. You're not even a real Babylonian. So, you know, basically, I'm going to give this a shot, but, uh, but you're not one of us. Then he references, um, my father, the king, brought from Judah. So Nebuchadnezzar, a long time ago, brought you here. You know, again, Daniel may have been in his 80s at this point. So, you know, you're basically, you got one foot in the grave, but let's see if you can help me here at all. So he's basically kind of dehumanizing him, calling him a foreigner, and then calling him, you know, too old to really know anything. Um, Now, before Daniel declares the truth, one thing I want to highlight is the king calls Daniel by his Hebrew name, Daniel, and Belshazzar calls him by his Hebrew name, Daniel. Um... Daniel, when he was brought to Babylon, like all of the other Hebrews, was given a different name. He was given a Babylonian name. He was given the name Belteshazzar instead of Belshazzar, Belteshazzar. And that name that he was given referenced a couple of the gods of Babylon. And so I'm sure it pained Daniel every single time that he had to hear this name, Belteshazzar, that knowing it was making reference to a couple of the Babylonian gods. And if you read in Daniel, Daniel's the only one that's called by his Hebrew name. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those stories are all, those are all their Babylonian names. Those are not their Hebrew names. 
But Daniel was close enough to Nebuchadnezzar, and God used him in such a mighty way in Nebuchadnezzar's life that he had the intimacy at some point to go and say, look, can you call me by my name, Daniel, <laughs> instead of these false gods? And Nebuchadnezzar had been rebuked by God enough to, to start calling him Daniel because the queen remembers both of his names, but she refers to him primarily as Daniel, and so does Belshazzar. Um, and so the name Daniel ironically means God is my judge. God is about to use Daniel to explain his judgment to Belshazzar, okay? So when Daniel comes in, um, here we, we have basically um, Belshazzar saying, you know, if you can read this, You'll be clothed with a purple robe. You'll have a chain of gold placed around your neck. Um, I almost picture Belshazzar, Belshazzar as like a, like a rapper. Like, you know, um, like he has all these Z's in his name, like, like Snoop Dogg refers to things with a lot of Z's. He's going to put a big gold chain around his neck, right? So he's almost like a, a rapper king in my mind. I know that's not what it was. But anyway, um, you're all edified for that now. Uh, so he comes in and... Um, he, he says, you know, look, I need you to tell me what's happening here if you can. So, um, and he offers Daniel this power and this money. He offers him this position of money and power. Now, Daniel turns it down. He says, look, I don't, I will, I will, I will answer, I will do what you've asked me to do here, but I don't, I don't want the robe or the chain or the power. You can keep all of that stuff. And it, there's an important point here in that Daniel was satisfied with where God had him. He had been demoted. He'd been humiliated. The king didn't even know who, who he was after being the king's most, the previous, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's most trusted advisor. But he's contented. He comes back and he says, you know, I don't, I don't need any of these things. And any time that we're pursuing God and pursuing other things, and I'm praying God will, will fully teach me this lesson, there is tension in our lives. And Daniel has moved past all of that to where God is enough. And that's one really important truth, that God is enough for his people. And so Daniel does not need this money or power. He ends up accepting it because Belshazzar makes good on his word to give him these things. So it's not bad to have those things. It's not bad to accept them. But that was not his goal. That's not what he was pursuing. That's not what his life was about. And so um, Daniel does accept it, but he also goes to give Belshazzar a history lesson. So now Belshazzar is getting two history lessons in the same night. The king, I mean, the queen came in and basically rebuked him told him about Nebuchadnezzar. Now Daniel is going to rebuke him and tell him about Nebuchadnezzar and how he heeded God. Um, and, and almost as if God had sent Babylon on a different direction and made a covenant with them, and Belshazzar has come in and broken that covenant and is now going back to kind of pagan idolatry. Um, so one thing I think that's important to know is we're all guilty before God. And um, Paul tells us this in Romans. In Romans 1, 18 through 23, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In these things, uh, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the point I want to make here is we're all guilty, and Belshazzar knows he's guilty. As soon as the handwriting appears, his whole countenance changes from one of of, of a big, you know, party monger to he faints and just is crushed before God. And we see that in Scripture, that whenever people come face-to-face with God, if you read throughout Scripture, they all just kind of collapse before God, and God has to revive them. Um, and so it's not that Belshazzar was, was not religious. He was religious. He was praising the gods of gold and iron and silver. So they're almost having kind of a, a, a um, you know, a perverted uh, worship service where everybody's drinking and praising these gods. So when the fingers appeared, why didn't he think that it was something good? If these gods are so powerful, why didn't he think they have come to reveal something that they're pleased with us about? Why didn't he assume it was a good prophecy? And I think the reason is, is because in his heart, he knew he was sinning against God. And, and we all do. Paul makes it clear in Romans that none of us are without excuse before God. And so God's going to come in, and he's going to issue his judgment to Belshazzar. And unfortunately, Belshazzar is not going to repent. Uh, but he's going to come in, and again, God has to bring his wrath on those who are corrupt, or he would not be a just God. Um, he would not be able to allow corruption and injustice to go by um, if he were perfect. So I want to end with four lessons from Belshazzar's life. Um, the first one I alluded to just a second ago, we know what we're doing when we sin. This is similar to, to Belshazzar. He collapsed when he was confronted with God because he knew, he knew his heart was not right. God is holy, and he's incapable of not dealing, with, of not dealing perfectly with us. But he's also merciful. He, by his mercy, bore our shame so that we could be united with him. Belshazzar turns to the wisdom and resource of the world, and he gets nothing. He's let down by the brilliant minds of his time. And I'm very thankful in our, in our modern world that we have lots of conveniences, that we have uh, an abundance of food, that we have clean water, we have access to medicine, um, we, have, we have transportation or access to transportation. But all of these ultimately are still gifts from God, and they come directly from his hand. And we should not give praise. As we were singing that um, song earlier, it's your breath that we pour out our praise. God is, he is the provider of everything in our lives. And it's our breath he gives us to even be able to praise him. And so we should turn to him when we have needs. Um, We should go to him first. Uh, The other thing is we should hope for change in others because we're all in Belshazzar's situation. As I mentioned, we're all born under the curse of sin. And if you think that's too simplistic or that's too harsh, think of Adam and Eve. They were given a perfect environment. They had no need of, of resources. They had no need to worry. They were free from sin. They could literally every day see God face to face. They could understand and see his glory, and yet they still chose sin. They still chose to rebel and to, and to choose death. And so we're all in Belshazzar's situation. We all choose sin. We all choose death. But God has, re- has redeemed us. He has brought hope through the work of Christ to us. And so let us not be um, hopeless when we think of others who seem beyond the reach of God. No one is beyond the reach of God. Kings are not beyond the reach of God. Our family members, our friends are not beyond the reach of God. So let us be filled with hope that the gospel can break in 
and that it can change cold, hard hearts and it can restore their lives. And finally, Belshazzar does not repent before the Lord. So Daniel interprets the, gives the interpretation, um, the words, mene, mene, tekel, parson. And this is what he says. The interpretation of the, this is the interpretation of the matter. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Again, that's where we all are. All of us are, are, have been weighed by God and been found wanting because we choose sin. And your king, Perez, your kingdom is divided and giving to the Medes and the Persians. So when Nebuchadnezzar was confronted with God, he always acknowledged who God was and repented. And we're not told that Belshazzar does that. It says that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. So it's dangerous to hear the word of the Lord and not heed it. Belshazzar hears a word directly from God, and he does not turn. May God grant us the wisdom and grace to hear his voice and turn to him when we hear it. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. It is not always easy. This is a difficult chapter in a lot of ways. It's difficult for me, and Jesus, we need your help. I thank you that you have left us your word. I thank you that we do not have to worry about you making mistakes with us, that we do not have to worry about your kingdom being overthrown or your power being taken. I thank you, Lord, that we can depend on you for everything. And I pray, Lord, for myself, I pray for all of us, that you would move our hearts, Lord, that you would build our faith, that we would depend on you for everything. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us sober minds that are alert, that are ready to receive an admonishment or a rebuke and repent. And I pray, Father, that you would also just increase our love and affection for you. Help us to see more of you. In your name, amen.